I think that if it hadn't have happened for me, then I'd be doing what you guys are doing on YouTube because this is totally up my street. When I've got my most bravado and I'm strutting and I'm, you know, uh, peacocking is when I'm the most nervous and the most scared. There was uh, tabloid newspapers were sending little green men, you know, journalists dressed as little green men to wait outside of my house. And it was, you know, Robbie Williams has gone mad and blah, blah, blah. And, I, you know, you know, I wasn't instantly, I wasn't safe. There was a contract out on me to kill me. When I used to be on my bike, people used to try and run me over. I'd get bricks thrown at me, pint pots thrown at me. And I was a pub goer and pubs became instantly unsafe for me. Why? Because of jealousy. Because of jealousy. You know, Young Bucks, Lord of the Flies. I'll tell you one story I don't think I've ever told. There was lots of times that I'd had to run for my life. But here I was in a gay bar in Manchester. The door opened to this different world that was just absolutely incredible. Fortunately, I didn't get to um, be a uh, Keith Richards kind of character. My drug abuse, my alcohol abuse uh, became very sad very, very quickly. I shot my emotions down, Sean, by probably taking your ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> What are we going to do about these hackers, Jen? Have you not heard of Surfshark? Yes, tell the viewers about Surfshark. So Surfshark mm. is an app and browser extension that you can get anywhere in the world. Put your device anywhere in the world. So, for example, if you want to watch all the stuff on American Netflix that is blocked in the UK, click on Surfshark, click on VPN USA, and there you've got it. Access to all these shows early. And stay safe on public Wi-Fi. So you can send and receive files safely. And you can get the best deals on online shopping. So yeah, I heard you can change your virtual location. Which might come in handy with your window being smashed. But it also means if you go overseas, you can, through Surfshark, put in UK and access all your UK stuff. <laughs> Jen, have you ever had FOMO? Unfortunately, I have had a fear of missing out. Turn on Surfshark and you will never have FOMO again. <laughs> Click the link in the description box and you will get 85% off and three months free. Get Surfshark VPN at surfshark.deals forward slash Sean. Enter promo code SHAUN for 85% off and three months extra. Months three. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. <laughs> hey, Rob, how's it going, man? It goes hey. good. How are you guys? Fantastic. Good, good. good to see you, Rob. We were just yeah. having a sing-along. Oh, what were you singing? We were singing. Oh, right. The flood. We were, oh, <laughs> we were singing the flood. <laughs> Great. Let me introduce you to Jen, my co-host. Yeah. Hi, Robbie. Hi, how are you? And Andrew, as also, I think he's messaged you previously. He's with a co-host. Yeah. Hi, Rob. I got a message for you from, uh, I was just talking to John Ronson, but he was just saying what a big fan of yours he is and what a nice person you are. And he said um, that whenever he's with you, 
wonderful and amazing things happen. Is that right? Uh, I love John Ronson. Yeah. And whenever I'm with John Ronson, wonderful and amazing things happen. <laughs> the last thing to happen with John Ronson was we, I'm very posh these days. So um, I was, I took the children to the Beverly Hills hotel for some, for some breakfast and John was in there and he joined us and uh, I, I ate up and I just walked off. And I, I, I'd left him to pay, and I, 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 I didn't do it on purpose. So I, I owe John Ronson a breakfast, and apologies to John. It's, it's not been forgotten. Are we, are we straight in? Are we going straight in? It is recorded. If you want to just keep going, because before we get into your life story, Dan, what was it like searching for UFOs with John Ronson? Um, well, what actually happened was. And this will be part of the life story, I guess, if that's what we're doing. In 2006, I'd retired from um, being a pop star. Um, but I knew that I needed to do something. And I'd heard that if you get paid for your passion, you never work a day in your life. And that resonated with me. And I was like, well, what am I passionate about? And it was like, well donuts and ufos <laughs> and um you know I, I couldn't be asked to make any donuts so i i had this i had this i had this thought where i'd become like arthur c clark back in the day when he had that television program and i thought i would go and um go and seek out weird and wonderful things and john ronson and me went to a, a ufo concert um, conference in nevada and um, it was my coming out as a tinfoil hat kind of person. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I got so much of a kick in, in the press. There was uh, tabloid newspapers were sending little green men, you know, journalists dressed as little green men to wait outside of my house. And it was, you know, Robbie Williams has gone mad and blah, blah, blah. And, I, you know. I did put on 30 pounds and grew a beard and I did look like a serial killer. So they might have had a point, but I, I found the whole episode so embarrassing and kind of degrading that I was like, okay, maybe I should turn to making donuts instead. <laughs> so can I please ask what your first experience with UFOs was? My first proper experience goes back to the Beverly Hills hotel. Once again, wow. My first proper experience Proper, proper, other than, oh, that's interesting, could be a, um, I am with a young lady, and it's over 17 years ago, because uh, I've been with my wife for 17 years, and it was, let's just say, a and other, and we were on um, two hotel lounges um, at the uh, in my room in the garden, looking up at the stars and then all of a sudden silently over our heads oh, i can only describe square object i would say probably the size of one and a half uh, penalty boxes to use a uh, soccer or a football term. <laughs> and it was matte black underneath and it, I, I don't know if you remember artex in from the 80s, Sean. No. Artex, and it was like what you had on your walls to try and make it look posh with all these swirls. They were like <laughs> random swirls, Artex. Yeah. In. 
And it was matte black with, you'll remember the Hacienda though. Oh, yes. Okay. So weirdly, it was matte black with the with this Artex in underneath and then Hacienda style, <laughs> a yellow and black stripes, like like it was a uh, a workman's thing. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It was like... Um, it was, I, I don't know, I, I just saw it, it came in silently and I could have hit it with a tennis ball and then it floated off. I was totally and utterly sober, which is something that I always tell people when I tell this story. I have been not sober a lot and I've never seen anything like that. Quarter of a size of a football pitch, silently floating black, matte black objects. Yeah. And um, I saw it. I saw it. I witnessed it. I felt it. Um, and then it floated off. And what was going through your mind? Oh, what was going through our mind was the same as the young lady who turned to me and went, what the fuck? <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a giant, what the fuck moment. And, um, you know, I've sort of always had a passionate interest in that kind of stuff. And it sharpens the senses when you have your own sightings. What I also thought was this. I didn't think little green men. I didn't think Zeta Reticular or Orion or interdimensional. I thought there's a bit of exotic technology that we're not supposed to have. And I felt in my spidey senses that it was our government, you know, our governments, the American government or who, whichever government. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't jump to little green men straight away. Uh, the little, it's, it's weird when you get into UFOs. I, ca- I kind of came into UFOs with all manner of possibilities being true. You know, Zeta Reticuli, Orion, interdimensional time travelers, the Anunnaki, all of these things. And then the more you read, the less you know. And then you realize you should just go with what it is you absolutely 100% know for sure. And I know for sure I saw that. And, um, I know that that exists. It's something that we we talk about quite a lot on Sean's uh, show as well. And we we love talking about all of that. And we also, you know, I know you're a person who's interested in spirituality. And as a famous person, I was wondering, have you been approached by Scientology ever? I like the dark journalist. You have the dark journalist on. He was on. Yeah. Yeah. I really like him in the mystery schools and um, the uh, Austrian... uh, sorry it's been a very very long day for me (laughs) diner and the mystery schools and hilda f klimt uh there was this painter right in in sweden and she's become instantly my favorite artist because she was just doing these um portraits of you know cafe society and landscapes in sweden and then in 1903 she started getting these downloads from aliens and her art just completely changed. And if you go check it, Hilda F. Plimpt, and just understand that this woman was painting these things in 1902, 1903. 
and it blew my mind and i'm sure if you go and check it out it may or may not blow your mind too have i been uh asked to join scientology never did you consider it no because you know that i've only heard and known about the supposed bad things attached to the church alleged bad things attached to the church you know um that that seem quite strong you know so no it's never been something that's interested me to go and check out and 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 do but something in their works and it's and something in their works for a lot of people and i, I always think that you know the best advert for scientology is kirsty alley because if you watch her do any interviews, she doesn't sound insane. Because everybody else that's attached to it, God bless them, you know, I, I love them. And I'm a huge fan of all of those people. But it, it's like there's always something slightly off. But mm. if they just sent Kirsty Alley in at their, <laughs> the, 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 the tip of their spear... I think they yeah. get a lot more people like me. So, Rob, what was it like growing up as a kid in the North? Was it was Stoke a bit like Witness? I'm guessing that Stoke was exactly like Witness. And um, I love where I'm from. Uh, I love my people. I love my tribe. I love the sense of humour. Um, I love the, the naughtiness, the cheekiness, um, the darkness of the humour too. Um and, you know, where I lived, I lived in a road of privately owned houses that ran in between two council estates. So what had happened with my mom, because my lineage is this, you know, uh, down the pits, cannon fodder, probably worked in the bogs and the marshes <laughs> in the dark ages. You know, we are from absolute poverty, absolute poverty. And my mum got a loan together and opened a ladies' dress shop in a, you know, not an upmarket area, let's say. And she made a success of it. And um, she was then able to open a coffee shop in a more salubrious area of Stoke-on-Trent. And then she bought upstairs and opened this uh, ladies' dress shop, sold that, bought a flower shop, started selling flowers and then opened a ladies dress shop above that. And what she managed to do by herself as a um, single parent raising two kids was nothing short of miraculous. It's actually a bigger deal than anything that I've achieved. The hard slog, uh, the ambition and the drive. And for everything that she did, she managed to take us from a council estate to a place where I don't know, a teacher would live or a, you know, or a dentist would live. How she did that is beyond me. And um, yeah, it is absolutely incredible. I'm in between two council estates on this one road. So I, I kind of like my peers instantly is like, I'm of them, but I'm not one of them. You know, there is that sort of, distinction like oh he's got his own house auntie you know it'd be like you, there'd be the council ices the council houses and 
Well, he's from his own house, isn't he? They, they own that one. Well, you do speak very highly of your mum. I mean, what was the relationship like with your dad? But relationship with my dad was I just adored him. He was my hero because he was a policeman. And then he went to this pub one night in Golden Hill in Stoke-on-Trent. And there was a talent competition. If you entered the talent competition and won, you won a fiver. And he, he was friends with some comedians who just nicked their jokes and told them and won the competition. <laughs> And then the next week, he did another competition in Hanley in Stoke-on-Trent, and he won that too, and he made a tenner. And he was he made more money winning these competitions than he did being a policeman or wherever he was working at the time. He um, handed his notice in and went off to become a full-time entertainer. And in 1974, the year that I was born, he was on New Faces – and won his round uh, and got to the final and didn't win it. Now, my dad is incredibly charismatic, incredibly talented, and everybody absolutely loves him, including me. Uh, so I just grew up backstage. I grew up around cabaret. I grew up around show folk. And, you know, if my dad hadn't have left the police force, I'd have probably been a policeman. Could you tell us the, the story of when you tried to buy your dad a house? But also I wanted to just ask, one of my favourite songs of yours is Nutsford City Limits. Is Nutsford a real place? Is Nutsford a real place? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is that, was that where you're is that? Is, I just know you're from Stoke. You don't know about <laughs> Nutsford, Andrew. I don't know about Nutsford. <laughs> That's why I'm asking the question. <laughs> okay, so Nutsford's, Nutsford's really upmarket. Actually, you know what? I, I sort of stretched an elastic band from 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 Stoke on Trent to Mars with my career in general, but I also, with that song, stretched an elastic band from Nutsford to Mars because it was just a joke. Uh, Tina Turner had done a song called Nutbush City Limits. <laughs> right. It was like the worst pun ever that I strung into a whole song. But listen, I'm glad the song reached its destination. I loved it. Yeah, and, and what was that? I wanted to know that story about when you tried to get your dad a house. Oh, yeah. So my dad lived above a hairdresser's in uh, Birch's Head in Stoke-on-Trent. And um, it was 50 quid a week, his house, his little flat. And it had those very, very steep stairs that, like, working-class houses have. So, like, you know, uh, two up, one down, whatever it is, stairs like this. And he's getting on a bit. And uh, went into his flat one day, and I went, Dad... Why don't you just go out in Stoke, buy any house you want to? And he turned to me and he went, why? <laughs> and I went, well, you know, you could, you could have a garden. Headache. I'm all right here. Perfectly fine. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's the beauty of my father. Is that I was offering him to go and buy any house that he wanted. And he was just happy in himself and happy with his lot. I, I think that I'm a combination of my mum and my dad. I am, I've got my mum's ambition and drive, and I've got my dad's ability to entertain. And uh, I think that if my dad had had my mum's ambition, then he would have done exactly what I've done and achieved what I've done. But he just didn't. He's, you know, he's... He's way happier than I've ever been. All of his life has just been 
he's been in his own movie. It's like in his movie, he's he's Dean Martin living a charmed life, you know, putting 50p on the horses to last him all day for entertainment. Did you know that you were always going to go into entertainment and upstage? Well, I've got a 10 year old daughter right now, Teddy, and I'm just watching what's happening to her. And all she wants to do is show off. You know, and um, I could probably put a positive spin on what it is that I do and what it is that she wants to do. I just always think that I'm doing, you know, interesting, fannying about. But she's just fannying about just like a dad. And she always has, you know, from the moment that she could get somebody's attention, she wanted to be she wanted to be worthy of that attention and do something interesting for them. And um, I, I guess that's just how I was. The moment I could talk, I was singing. The moment I could walk, I was dancing. You know, um, it was what I was naturally inclined to do. And I was going to make a name of myself by hook or by crook. But whatever level that was going to be was in the lap of the gods. I couldn't have expected or even dreamt that I'd become me that's done this, you know? Um, but, you know, to answer your question, I was always, I was always going to be in this sphere. I, I think that if it hadn't have happened for me, then I'd be doing what you guys are doing on YouTube. Cause this is totally up my street. Were you popular Sorry. in school, Rob? Or were you like me getting beat up by the rugby players? No, I wasn't. I wasn't unpopular. I hit on a good year in a good school and you know, there wasn't, um, I'm sure you could ask other people, I, I, I'm going to say blanket statement, there was no bullying, but uh, uh, other than, you know, the, the mean shit that you say when you're that age to each other, I wasn't unpopular. Uh, I, I wasn't academic at all. I've got really, I've got ADHD, I've got dyslexia. I've got loads and loads of things, but those were the things that hampered me at school and dyspraxia. And um, I left school with absolutely no qualifications at all. So if you ask any of my mates from school what they thought of me, they thought I was thick. <laughs> because in the in the 80s in Stoke-on-Trent, you didn't have dyslexia and you didn't have ADHD. So I just spent five years at school with a painted face um pretending that i was listening and i think i did a really good job <laughs> at fooling everybody because i was quite good at acting and also i did a good um a good version of butter wouldn't melt so i got away with an awful lot of stuff too i never got caught do, do you still have mates from back back in those days and, and does that become hard with fame yeah instantly it does because i auditioned for take that when i was 15 i got in when i was 16 we became famous when I was just 17. And um, what happens is you get, especially with something like Take That, you get harnessed to a rocket ship that's going to Mars. And um, you're on the outside just holding on like this. And then you arrive in Mars and you go, how do I get back? Oh, you can't. Not only that, you know that tribe you were part of, you are now no longer part of that tribe. You exist as an other outside of that, especially when you are 17, because young bucks are going to Lord of the Flies it. 
and it was like Lord of the Flies. You know, I wasn't instantly, I wasn't safe. There was a contract out on me to kill me. When I used to be on my bike, people used to try and run me over. I'd get bricks thrown at me, pint pots thrown at me. And I was a pub goer and pubs became instantly unsafe for me. Why? Because of jealousy. Because of jealousy. You know, Young Bucks, Lord of the Flies. I'll tell you one story I don't think I've ever told. There was lots of times that I'd had to run for my life, like loads of times. And there was this one time I was in a, a garage in Newcastle Underlime, and I'd already known that I shouldn't be in these sort of places. I shouldn't be outside of my road and my pubs that I go to. But I'd had three pints and I was watching the football in a pub and I went to a garage and um, stood in this garage and there's about five people in front of me and I see this car pull up. It's an old Talbot, an old Talbot Sunbeam or something like that. And uh, there's five lads in it. And I just knew I was fucked straight away. Five lads and uh, two of them got out and I'm looking in the mirror behind the uh, the cashier and I see one go to the other. It's Robbie. Come on. So they go and get the other three lads out of the car. And I look over to the exit and I see the exit green sign exit. One of those push bar things, but it's got a um, a chain on it and a padlock. And I'm thinking... If I if I run and get to that door, you're just going to kick my head in. So I'd had three pints. And when you've had three pints, you do think you're 10 men. And I got to the counter and I said, I'll have a pack of silk cut, a pack of prawn cocktail crisps, a lighter and some lighter fluid. And I turned around and I knocked the cap off the lighter fluid and lit the flame on the lighter and just did that through all five of them and then got outside and ran off. Oh it's, it's like the video from no regrets yeah, yeah. but 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 those but those sort of things happened those sort of things happened an awful lot wow. you know um on a regular basis what then would happen too is outside my mum's house there'd be anything from 20 to 50 girls one day the police had to cordon off the road because there were so many girls outside the house and they would they would jump over and 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 rip grass up and um steal wood off the fence and jump over the back and like nick the washing line nick 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 the washing off the washing line and then every thursday a coach full of 50 would arrive from Germany and they do like take that houses travel and they'd like go to mine and then 50 would jump out and then take photos and rip up daffodils and shit and then get back on a tour bus and then go to Mark's house and do it there and Howard's house <laughs> and do it there. So, um, you know, there, there was, there was a contract army to kill me. There was the no safety uh, anywhere that I went um, I felt vulnerable to attack at any any moment I was outside of the house. Then when I was inside of the house, I was the man of the house and I had to protect my mum and my sister. Um, yeah, so I, I, I acquired a few things that I slept with that probably would have got me five years if they'd have found out that I had acquired those things that I was sleeping with. Uh, and then, so mum closed the curtains because, you know, there would just be girls doing that in the front <laughs> window. My mum sort of 
working all the hours that God sends to provide a, not even a lower class, lower middle class. It wasn't, you know, I think the aspirations were to be lower middle class, but we didn't quite achieve that, you know. Um, So that on top of this stuff that was happening to me and what was happening in our neighborhood, uh, the cars would get broken into every week. And, uh, you know, she became, she became quite depressed with it. And then my life at work was spent with uh, what I thought was going to happen with Take That was we were going to be this gang and it was going to be like school because school to me, I just, I've never laughed so much as I did that when I was at school, you know, that was, that was the best thing for me was the socializing and the belly aches of laughter. And I thought that that was what was going to be being in Take That. And then we were going to be in Take That. It's going to be the best gang. And we're going to be famous. That's amazing, right? So what actually happened was a joint Take That. Gary Barlow is already a musical genius, right? He's already making more money than his teachers at the age of 13 because he's working clubs every night. Mm. He wrote he wrote A Million Love Songs when he was... I think he was 13 when he wrote A Million Love Songs. Christ. 13 or 14. So... Nigel Martin Smith, our manager, took him and then put us four Muppets around him. So Gaz instantly, in his head, is going, what are these four Muppets for? You know, so if if I'm guessing what happened, he's already resentful that he has to take us along for the ride. And you've got Jason Orange, that's one of five brothers that was always fighting for his position in his own family. And then he's put in another family where he's fighting position and jostling. And then you've got Howard that's really lovely and really funny, but doesn't say an awful lot. And then you've got Mark Owen that's like a a beautiful, wonderful soul that we I palled up with. But we weren't a gang. You know, Mm. we weren't. We are we are now, funnily enough. But um, those early years were. you know, I, I I have my problems with how we were managed at the time that I can't go into because, you know, he's very litigious. Uh, but mm. um, so what happened was I didn't feel safe and comfortable at work and I wasn't actually physically safe at home. And um, that was a toxic powder keg for somebody in their formative years that it's like sending a 10 year old to the gym to bench press and you know uh, work with dumbbells and uh, kettlebells you wouldn't send a 10 year old to do that as a 16 17 year old you're on this rocket ship to mars you become incredibly famous. It's toxic. I was listening to Sporty Spice today. She just did a long-form podcast, and she said she went from just being a, a young person out of witness within two years being internationally famous, and you've described, you know, this meteoric feeling. She said to survive it, she said it was the best and worst time of her life, and to survive it, she had to completely shut her emotions down. Did you have to shut your emotions down? I shut my emotions down, Sean, by probably taking your ecstasy. 
Shelly's. Shelly's. Shelly's Laser. Shelly's Laser. Did you go to Shelly's Laser, Dome? I was always in Shelly's, man. Shelly's, the Eclipse in Coventry. Yeah. We were probably in Shelly's. Were you there when Evolution played there? The night Evolution played, Take Me, Take Me, Take Me. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alternates. Alternate. Alternate played in the car park one night. I saw the prodigy there. Wow. Yeah. I began self-medicating <laughs> at a uh, very, very early age. My daughter's six years away from being 16. And as a 16-year-old, I'm taking, I'm doing trips in chalets. You know, it's like, what the... And also, without social media, I was in this Lily White pop group. But I was getting away with so much. Did you ever go to Money Pennies? I didn't go Money Pennies, no. I was in Money Pennies doing a lot of things. I was in Cream doing a lot of things. I was in the Hacienda doing a lot of things. Yeah, I, I managed to get away with singing a million love songs by day and then, you know, taking a million pills by night. So was that a refuge <laughs> I mean, from the danger of the pubs? Well, see, we'd go, we'd go mob handed, like like with with Shally's, That was before I was famous. But everywhere else that I went, you know, I um I, I hooked up with a crew from Warrington, and the you know they were all sort of like that, uh, and we'd be we'd be twenty, tw- we'd be we'd be mob handed. I was safe with them because there was enough of us, and the music was great. And I didn't have to put my steel toe cap boots on for fear of getting my head kicked in. And that's how I used to grade where I was going to in Stoke-on-Trent. It'd be like, I'm going Valentino's on student night tonight. I better put my steel toe cap boots on. <laughs> but, oh and, and now I can just go in my, you know, Adidas gazelles or whatever uh, and enjoy myself. But this did happen. This one thing did happen. So um, we got our first gig there. And we didn't have a dressing room. It was just an alcove with some curtains. Then um, we only did gay clubs, I'd say, for the next 14 months. How far was it along until you split? We'll take that. Yeah. We were very restricted and there was lots of different rules. And you can't do this. And you can't be that. And you you uh, can't have a girlfriend and blah, 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 blah. My place in the band was always being threatened, you know, that with with not being in the band we can always find a boy with brown hair from Stoke-on-Trent and call him Robbie and you can be replaced and all of that business once we'd cemented ourselves with two albums and multi-platinums and playing arenas night after night I was like ding no one can fire me (laughs) I'm going out Uh, and um yeah, I, I did this big, I broke the rules by going to Glastonbury, which was kind of, it was seismic for me and kind of seismic for everybody else that had this boy bander that hadn't got his indie stripes wandering around backstage. I wasn't allowed to go. Imagine not being allowed to go. <laughs> of so I, I took off with a, a boot full of champagne and a pocket full of cocaine. You know, so would start my new life. After that, I think it became apparent that I couldn't be cajoled or restricted 
or uh, play the game. And it wasn't long after that that, you know, I said I wanted to leave after this particular tour. The boys took that as an opportunity to say, we'd like you to leave now. Um, what do you think? And I, I upped and left. So who was playing at Glastonbury? Oh, Oasis and Paul. Um, and people Did you were look on. up to those guys at that time? Did you want to be more like the sort of a well, a solo artist that you you came to be or indie? Yeah, I don't I don't think that anybody really when they're 16, 17, 18 or 19 musically aspires to the music that boy bands are making. You know, there is a pretense that can be formed when you are that age that sort of goes I'm not into that. I'm into this. But I was actually being paid to be into that. <laughs> and uh, everybody that I loved and liked and respected and wanted to be like uh, played guitar music. And I was no different to any, uh, I suppose, any boy that was buying the Enemy magazine or Malady Maker magazine or The Face or Select or whatever it was. You know, I wanted I wanted to be like that. It felt like more fun and it felt real, you know. Um, I've double, tripled back on that as I've got older and, you know, my pretenses have fallen away. And, you know, I can, I can love a New Kids on the Block song the same way as I can dig a Radiohead song and, you know, so and so forth. You know, I, I don't I don't have those pretenses anymore. But yeah, I saw Oasis in a video. Uh, first time I really saw them was a, a track called uh, Whatever. Free to do whatever I... Yeah. It was dangerous, you know, and it was menacing and it was cool and it was laddie. And um, a big gig of mine when I was growing up, there was three gigs that I had on VH, uh, VHS. Uh, one of them was um, Public Enemy uh, at Brixton, I think, or Shepherd's Bush Empire, I'm not sure what. Prince's Love Sexy Tour and the Happy Mondays at the GMAX. And there was, with the, with the Happy Mondays, there was this sort of naughtiness that I so desperately wanted to be part of. It felt like my tribe and they felt like my people. And... Um, yeah, that that's that's what I wanted to be. But there I was on top of the pop singing a million love songs later, and here I am. Um, so yeah, you you bet your life that when Common People came out, or Boys and Girls by Blur, or whatever by Oasis. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. That's who I wanted to be. So I tell the school kids that drugs start out fun at first, but it leads to dark and dangerous places. For example, you know, Russell Brand, I've read his books, and he went some really dangerous places, got arrested a few times. How about yourself, Rob? Did it take you to some dark and dangerous places? I got arrested in my mind. You know, my, my mind went to hell, and my psychosis did. And it happened quite quickly. Unfortunately... The golden era of using for me dried up very, very quickly. You know, um, I suppose I had 18 months worth of fantastic times. 
paying for it on the Tuesday after a Saturday, you know, the, those Tuesdays that you used to get where you were, I suppose you'd used up all of your serotonin and your, your mind's crying out for help and all you can do is lay vulnerable on the sofa. But I was yet to find my place properly in Hades and that quickly came. That quickly came through finding out that you can keep the party going after the ecstasy by doing cocaine. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. And it took me to hell very, very quickly. Unfortunately, I didn't get to um, be a uh, Keith Richards kind of character. My drug abuse, my alcohol abuse uh, became very sad very, very quickly. And uh, I knew that I was, there was something wrong with me that I'd labeled in my head, oh, I think I'm an alcoholic. By the time I was 19, when you talk about it, it, it's still sort of in my mind, the nostalgia of what it was to be around that sort of rave culture and what we all thought we were achieving and where we all thought we were going and these mind cosmonauts that were going to change the planet by dancing, you know, <laughs> we, we all thought we were onto something. I didn't. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I just think by, by sweating profusely in the club and dancing like that, we thought we were going to change the world, but our world did change. You know, my world changed. I am glad I experienced that. Uh, I still, to this day, pay for those moments in one way or another. What was your stopping point? Um, well, I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic and addicts like to addict. There is a bit of me that's quite smart and I will try and find any loophole that I can find. And I, I mean like, okay, so tried heroin, that didn't work. Cocaine's bad. Uh, what about pills? I'll just take pills. I'll take like a doctor's pills and then you get addicted to them. I can't sleep. I'll take sleeping pills. Um, and then I end up sort of with 15 sleeping pills in my pocket, nibbling them on a night out. That's kind of what happens to me. And then you go, okay, I've tried all of these things. What about weed? Weed, I could still have my career and I, I, I wouldn't lose everything. I still turn up to everything. But then weed just gave me complete psychosis. And then you sort of like, you give NyQuil a go. <laughs> you know, it's just like loophole after loophole after loophole after loophole. Looking to be able to switch radio, rub off, numb it and, and just have a holiday from your own mind without going to prison, without going to hell, without losing your family and losing your career. I've knocked out all of those loopholes. I haven't had a drink for 22 years. Um, well I had, thank you. I had a brief period where I was doing cocaine without drinking, which was absolutely freaking horrible. That <laughs> lasted for a few months. I, I'm, I'm pleased to say that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a sober guy. I'm a sober guy. Um, something's always lurking around the corner though. And I, I still can't be trusted with pills. Mm. The wife has to, has to put them behind lock and key. Cause uh, what happens with me is I'll find that, you know, there'll be some sort of pills that are somewhere 
for a uh, medical procedure or whatever. And they'll just be there and they could be there for 18 months, every single day, Vicodin, whatever, whatever, whatever. Every day, see them, go to bed. Dead up. One day, for no reason, not being sad or not being happy or not feeling vulnerable, just whatever is in the air that day, all of those pills go. If you can, if you can channel this energy correctly, you can be an X-Man, you know. So I'm currently addicted to drawing and I'm addicted to making these funny cartoons. So I think they're funny. Um, and I've got like 600 of them, 700 of them. And then I turned my hand to doing art and I had my first exhibition at Sotheby's and um, I've written this TV show. There's a dark comedy come up with this idea for a talent show that's sort of never been seen before in a different way. Got these three drinks coming out. I've got a clothes company coming out. So this all comes from the addictive gene the reason why you know i've had 14 of my own out al- 15 of my own albums 15 released albums three online five with take that there's a hundred songs on my computer that nobody's ever heard that's sort of like the vault this is all this is all the addictive nature when we wake up in the morning we get out of bed we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. And the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Let's see what this one tastes like. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. If I can channel it that way, I can do great things with it. And um, it's just that, you know, I find that sitting with a Posca paint pen and drawing stuff turns this off. So, you know, that's not a bad loophole to have. And my wife allows me a lot of leeway. She allows me to spend eight hours just doing that. You know, because she knows that I'm an addict. And if I'm doing that, I'm not doing the other. Like, for example, I start walking and I've got an IFA, I've got an iWatch and um, I do 25,000 steps a day. <laughs> 25,000 steps a day because I get, I get addicted to walking. I played, I, not at the moment, I played golf. I'd wake up, I'd go to the driving range, I'd hit 200 balls, then I play uh, 36 holes every day. Uh, and and sugar is a sugar's a bitch cuz yeah. sugar's sugar's more yes. difficult than booze and sugar's more difficult than cocaine and um it's got me, it's got me in the grips of its uh yeah, it's it's power. I suppose what I'm trying to say is at the minute 
I'm a very sober man that um, thinks and behaves addictively. But the way that I behave these days addictively isn't going to get me divorced, isn't going to make me lose my job. And in fact, I'm adding more to my life because of my predilection to wanting too much all of the time. But somebody with an addictive personality, can you try and help us understand what it might be to, to be out, let's say, at Nebworth? in front of hundreds of thousands of people, I think it set a record at the time, to, to feel that rush. And is that addictive as well? I explain Nebworth. So I've always, been, I've always had charlatan syndrome. And to this day, I still have it, but it's um, not as overwhelming as it used to be. Like the, 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 and I have intrusive thoughts, and my intrusive thoughts are have a jujitsu-style grip over me feeding myself anything positive about myself. It's very difficult to understand, but in the early days of my solo career, I didn't believe that I deserved any of it. And no matter how big, from the first university that I did my gig at, first gig at, to the arena, to then the stadium, to then Nebworth, I didn't feel as though I deserved any of it. And the bigger it got, the bigger this charlatan, charlatan syndrome got too. And weirdly, when I perform, when I've got my most bravado and I'm strutting and I'm, you know, uh, peacocking, is when I'm the most nervous and the most scared. Nebworth was a time for me where the intense responsibility of facilitating a good time for these good people that had spent good money to come to see me was overwhelming. Um, if you don't think you deserve it, and there is 135,000 people turning up, the person that is backstage is very, very different to the person that is on stage. It just felt like the world was collapsing in on me and I was trying to lift this amorphous blob of self-hatred to mix and match it with this adoration that I was receiving at the front. You know, it was completely and utterly unhealthy and unsustainable. You know, that's um, intrusive thoughts, intrusive thoughts that are very powerful and very negative. Bit of an introvert then, as opposed to an extrovert. Yeah, I'm absolutely an introvert, you know, uh, and I, I want to isolate and it takes me an awful lot. I, I'm, I'm, I'm better than I used to be. Uh, when I first started going out with my wife, all of her friends thought I didn't exist because, like, she'd be going and having meals with people in the evening. And it'd just be her because, like, and they, and and then I'd sort of get a free pass. It's like, well, Robbie's that guy that doesn't come out. And what happened was when the kids arrived, they kind of smoked me out of the house. I had to go and join in with the world. And slowly, um, I've got better at it. My, by nature, my very, my very being would be, I'd have my head on the pillow and my eyes would open in the morning and then I'd just stay there all day because that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's where I feel the most comfortable. That's where I feel the most safe, you know. Um, but 
My dad's the same. You know, that story I told you about is flat and not why, you know, he's I'm kind of the same. It's like, do you want to go out? Why? I've been out. I want to do it again. You know, I've, I've, yeah i've been out (laughs) i've been out i've been out a lot i've seen it it's got nothing to offer me and then when you sort of get sober i realize that oh i'm a massive introvert that was actually using cocaine as a tool to be able to socialize all of that is taken away and then i didn't know how to speak to people i didn't know how to conversate yeah, I, I used to have a friend that was sort of like my 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 talking head that I'd go everywhere with and he'd do the talking for me and I'd be just feeling uncomfortable in my skin behind him. Um, but it is definitely so- socialising for me was at the beginning like going to the gym and when you go to the gym first time and you lift those big weights and you get those that, that pain down here lactic acid build up and uh socializing felt like lactic lactic acid build up and i think i'm not going to do that again but then you have to do it you have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and unfortunately it takes way longer to become more natural than i would um like it to be uh still to this day you know socializing i find overwhelming and takes my energy instead of gives it to me but i do do it and i am better at it the fact that i'm doing this podcast with you and i can say all of these words out of my mouth (laughs) means that something (laughs) has changed for me (laughs) so rob i tried heroin once it was in america A, a girlfriend had just dumped me i was broken hearted she invited me over. She had, she had some hair and I thought if I did it with her, we were going to get back together, which never happened. But anyhow, she shot me up. I was floored right away. And for two days, I was just hallucinating, puking, scratching my balls. And it put me off ever wanting to do that for the rest of my life. You said earlier that you tried it and it didn't work for you. Was it? Did you experience something similar? I was in King's Cross and I was at somebody's flat, the great and good at the time. And the cocaine ran out, but the heroin hadn't. And it was as simple as that. You know, it was as simple as, yeah, go on then, you know, because heroin's bad, right? Uh, And what happened for me was I just was throwing up. I wasn't hallucinating. I wasn't scratching anything, but I was just (laughs) throwing up and it felt awful. It felt terrible. And I'd heard that doing heroin was like God giving you a cuddle. And like the people that I was with were like, what do you think? And I was like, it's like God giving me a cuddle, but it wasn't at all. It felt disgusting and poisonous and vile. And uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't run back to do it again. I wonder if we should get onto the music because you've just released this brilliant re-record of all your greatest hits. I was just at this wedding the other day where the mu- the musicians went from table to table playing, you know, people had to request hits and they requested, you know, all the big, you know, ironic uh, Alanis Morissette and things like that. And every- everyone was having a good time. And then someone requested Angels and the place just went 
berserk like all the the grandparents the dads the kids everyone's getting up and singing along it was it was mad um and you know how does angels feel to you today looking back that song how did that change things and and do you do you ever feel like it's your creep like radiohead because i know they get tired of playing creep i think i don't think they get tired of playing creep they just don't play it i think they hate it and it's not the same with me and angels i'm very very grateful for it like I said, I've got a hundred unreleased songs that I've written that are on my computer. I've written 15 albums that have been released. Um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs I've written. I've had the chance to replicate the same thing that angels has done. Every time I sit down and think up some words and think up a melody and I never have, you know, that song exists somewhere outside of me in a different realm and that song gave me absolutely everything that i have today i'm never sick of singing it i don't understand what it does to people i just know that it does and i don't have to understand it you know it's and it's the same in loads and loads of countries too you know it's uh yeah it exists somewhere outside of me never bored of singing it and also it signifies that it's the end of my show too because starwood let me entertain you finish with angels so every time i'm i'm singing angels i'm quite relieved that i facilitated what i need to facilitate and i'm going home next would you say that's one of your favorite songs you've performed as i'm getting older i just like any ballads that work so I don't have to do much yeah. work then. You know, you're doing rock DJ and you're doing Let Me Entertain You and, you know, all of these sort of high-octane, testosterone-filled songs and my my body's just not up for it. So I much prefer, I'd much prefer just like, you know, um, a string quartet, an acoustic guitar, and sing She's the One, Angels and Feel. <laughs> you said that you and your bandmates, you thought they were going to be a, you know, a gang tight, and it wasn't that way, even though it's become that now. Did you guys fall out at some point then, and what was that over? We, we never fell in. You know, we were of this thing that was happening to us, and there was a love there, but we were strangers. You know, we were, we were strangers foisted into this happening and um you know i i didn't like how we were treated when we were in the band and it felt like there was only one person being managed and that was gary barlow it's like gary barlow and the four backing dancers and i had ambitions and hopes and dreams you know what happened within that setup was very much felt like we were second class citizens And uh, that leads to resentment and it leads to jealousy. And, um, you know, all of those things. And then when I left Take That, it was the 90s and it was heady and it was people attacking people in print. And it was the dumb thing and it was interesting, you know. So I fueled by cocaine and alcohol and resentment, I attacked them at every opportunity that I could. Um, uh, And testament to them because of the people that they are, 
they never attacked me back. But I, I wanted that back and forth. It just never came. Gary Barlow's just a very nice man. You know, he's just a very nice man. Did you have any crazy beefs with other celebrities who did attack back? Oasis throughout the years. Yeah, that's, you know, I've, I've offered to fight Liam Gallagher a couple of times. And, <laughs> And uh, like yeah, fist fight him, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was, I wanted to do, I, I, I spoke to Barry Hearn, which one's the son, a boxing promoter. And I, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to properly because I'd seen these YouTubers boxing, Eddie Hearn, yeah. I'd seen these YouTubers boxing, and I thought I'd like to test myself and do that, but there's only one person that I wanted to fight. And that was Liam, but he wouldn't fight me. That being said, to, um, just to wrap up that, because I don't want that to start up all over again. Look, look Liam Gallagher. Please for him that everything's going really well for him. And, you know, he's an incredible rock star, an incredible personality, and the world is richer for him being in it. So I'll just qualify that with that. Um, yeah, that was... That was probably the only, the only uh, public beefs. Yeah. Are you mates now then with the Gallagher's? No, no, I, I don't know them. I don't know them. They don't. Do you know. listen to his music? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, I like I like Liam's music. The last album, there's like five or six songs on it that are just absolutely incredible. You know that they because you know I, I'm really I'm really competitive. And um, I want to know what people are doing. And I want to know what the people around me from my time in the sun in in every way are up to and, and how it's going for them and where I should be in the pecking order of things. And, you know, I, I, I see it very much as a a sport, I suppose. There's the ethereal stuff when you sit down and, cast your net out and try to create these beautiful pop songs that might mean somebody to someone, uh, might cuddle them or, you know, might soothe them. Um, and then there's these other songs that I do are full of bravado. Um, but then after that, you know, it's a battle. I want to win. I always want to win. You know, when, when they ask like Harry Kane, like, were you aware of that record you've just got or whatever? And they'll always be like, oh, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, are you, you, were you aware of the latest album? That's now, I think, the most solo album number ones in the UK history. Yeah, I and we, my team, achieved it. And what actually happens is you get to exhale because it's very important for me that I get to have my creative endeavors met positively. And for my creative endeavors to be met positively, I have to have some form of relevancy. And my form of relevancy in this particular week has come by having another number one album that is beaten or equaled Elvis. And, um, you know, it bodes well because I'm very vulnerable and I'm very fragile. And you take away fra- you take away relevancy from Robbie Williams's life. Um, who and what am I? <laughs> you know, it, it, that that leaves me that leaves me scared. 
I don't I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to have to find out. There's no sense of pride and a puffing out of the chest. It's just a relief that you're that I'm still somebody. Have you ever had to box any paparazzi? What's the lens they've gone to get close to you? Uh yeah, no. I, I mean I used to be followed by them twenty four seven and um I was too smart to hit one of them because <laughs> it would have cost me money. Although I wanted to. Um you know they they are they are sociopaths of the highest order that um, cannot hear you and uh, will not hear you and have no empathy and I they are the 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 sort of flying monkeys of the witch of the west and uh, they feed off trauma trauma takes a shit and they come searching through that shit. Uh, trying to find out how they can salvage and make money from it. I just find that a really bizarre job. I, I've always found that a bizarre job. The idea of ever even interviewing someone who doesn't want to be interviewed by me, let alone sticking a camera in their face, getting into their lives and things. But you're, but you have empathy. A little bit. A little bit, but you have more than them, <laughs> which is quite yeah. easy to achieve. But um, you understand that that wouldn't be a nice thing to do or or a human thing to do. Uh, mm. to behave in that way but they don't have that human instinct they have something else that makes them that gives them the ability to behave in that way it's bizarre it is bizarre what is that what is that part of why you quit in 2006 was it the attention paparazzi and all that that was a lot to do with it yeah that was a lot to do with it i i i set about dismantling and sabotaging my career um <laughs> Because the the spotlight that shone on me at the time, I found too intense. And um, what happened was 2006, I was just like, do you know what? I know how I win this because me being competitive again, (laughs) I just sit on this sofa and I never leave. And that's what I'm going to do. So I bought this cashmere caftan that I got in Morocco and I built uh, I I, uh, uh, grew a beard. It looked like a serial killer. And I ate, I ate honey Dijon kettle chips for dinner and watched The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and didn't move for three years. And um, by the time I came out in like 2009, I came out the house, they'd all gone. And I was like, fellas, fellas, lads. <laughs> so what I, what I set out to achieve, I actually did. Uh, and the spotlight moved on to other people. And um, there is a lot of me that is very grateful to have passed me for having done that. But then there's a lot of me too that's still full of ego and wanted to be the king of the world. So had you seen uh, Sean's channel before you came on? Did you know much about it? Yeah. Yeah. Rob's into conspiracies, aren't you? That's that's my jam. Look, you know, I've... um, I've seen things that shouldn't exist. Therefore, everything's on the table. And um, I do believe that my I have an open mind. Time and research and experience has led me to not having my mind so open that it falls out. You know, there's that, that saying, that, that phrase. Um, everything's on the table, but I believe nothing. I just look at things and go, that's interesting, you know, uh, and that may be the case. But, um, you know, I, I 
I don't run away thinking I've got the answers just because I did some research by watching some YouTube videos, which a lot of people do. They sort of, you know, they sort of get carried away with the what is and what isn't happening in the world. And that, you know, somebody that's behind the scenes, I want to go, no, that's not happening. It's not happening. So wake up, wake up. Some of it is, but that isn't. I can tell you that isn't. Um, Yeah, uh, uh, but it's not my place. It's not my place to let people know either way. And then I had a thought the other day was like, hey, what if all of this is chaos? It's just chaos. And that fucking terrified me. There's no conspiracies and it's just chaos. I'd rather have the conspiracies (laughs) than I would have it just be chaos. Because if you sit with the fact that it is chaos for long enough, it's actually paralyzing. Have you met David Icke or read his books? I have met David Icke and I did read his books. And um, yeah, that was, there, there used to be this bookstore in Los Angeles called the Bodhi Tree. And it was, it was just the best store ever. It was like, you know, when Harry Potter goes and gets his wand in that, that, <laughs> that he walks through that alleyway and then he ends up in this menagerie of places that sell all sorts of potions and owls and stuff. It was like wandering into one of those stores. And I was sure that the secrets of the universe existed in one, if not a hundred of these books. So I bought them all. And um, one of them was, was David Icke. And I found that all fascinating. And then, you know, I, I I, it, I I always find it fascinating when I find out where his research for things comes from. It's like, oh, he's got that from there and he's got that from there. He's made that, you know, the reptilian agenda and all of that business, whatever, that, that sits. If you take that <laughs> out of the equation, there's some very interesting nuggets there that may or may not be happening. And like I said before, that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe in anything. I don't. I'm just a naive scholar that's trying to figure out whether there's magic or not. I think you've hit on something um, really interesting there because I was just interviewing a skeptic uh, called Michael Shermer the other day and he said uh, exactly what you just said before, which is one of the reasons so many of us like to believe in conspiracy theories is because the alternative that... There's no one in charge. Nobody knows what they're doing. We're all just sort of bumping around is terrifying. It would appear that we are closer to everybody just bumping around than this whole magic tapestry that people like me have found themselves learning about since the internet was ex- since the ex- internet existed. I can point to it being bumbling idiots more than I can point to it being reptiles. (laughs) There's more evidence that it's bumbling idiots. Yeah, I think so. I want to. There's one thing um, I picked up on that you said a few years ago, which is that you'd love to be famous in the US so that Jennifer Aniston knows who you are. And I just wonder, does Jennifer Aniston know who you are? And and is it not a relief for someone as famous as you and you know all around the world to have somewhere where you can walk around and not be as mobbed? Yeah, I, uh, I said that an awful long time ago. That was before the wife. Um, <laughs> I, what happened was I was promoting an album 
in the States. I think it may have been my first or second album. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with somebody that's mentally ill, I had severe anxiety, severe depression. I couldn't find any joy in anything. And um, it would seem that the job that I'd chosen was quite toxic and was exasperating all of these ailments. And I got to the States and I was like in a radio station in Milwaukee or wherever it was. And I sort of had an epiphany and I'm like, I've just sold 7 million albums. I've got several million in the bank. What, why do I want more of this? It's just going to make things worse. And I stopped working in the States straight away and bought a house there. And I've never done any work in the States ever since. And uh, I get to be Bruce Wayne in Beverly Hills and I get to be Batman in the rest of the world. And uh, it's saved me. It's, uh, yeah, it's given me the space uh, to be able to be a human. And um, it's another one of those decisions made, though, where there is the grown-up that's driving the car that thanks me for doing that and then there's the egomaniac in the back who's going yeah but you know if you'd have done that then you could have had this that and the other and you could be this and you know rocky would know who you are what the fuck (laughs) does any of that mean though you know do you you think it was because your your name's so close to robin williams do you think that's an issue (laughs) what with with not breaking the states uh no i bumped into him once well (gasps) i say bumped into him uh, he was uh, in the same plaza where I was shopping and I did want to go over to him and go, do you ever get there? Cause I get yeah. there. And I didn't, I didn't. There's been a, oh. there's been a couple of times when I turned up at restaurants in LA where they've thought Robin Williams was coming and then they get me and they're disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> does, oh. does money just become a number, Rob? I mean, once you can go certain restaurants and you can travel the world and you can buy whatever house you want, does the rest just become a number after that? No, no, that's, that's the, that's the trick about money that um, I don't think many people know. You're always on the gerbil wheel. You're always on the gerbil wheel. And um, the more money you get, the more you spend and the bigger toys you have and the more expansive your life becomes and the more people that you employ, you know, you become terrified to give any of it up because it makes your life easier. What happens is you get a penchant and a taste for the finer things in life and they're all ridiculously expensive. I've got friends that are billionaires and on the quiet, I'll just go, do you ever have financial insecurity? And they'll all go to a man and a woman. Yes. Yes, wow. I do. Every day, all day. That's the big secret. There's a big secret because it doesn't matter who you are or how much you've got. You're always scared of losing it or you're always scared of abusing it. And um, you're, never, you're never sure where what is going and to who and how long this will last if I get this thing and I go on that thing and I eat this thing and I wear this thing and, you know, it's, um, yeah, I have financial insecurity and, um, I, you know, it's a bizarre thing to express, but I do ask 
the people that are above me in a different stratosphere and they have it you know so that's the big secret that's the big secret so does making it become an addiction no because i'm never thinking about the paycheck i'm never thinking you know it becomes something that happens afterwards and i go oh cool that's that's amazing great i can facilitate our lifestyle but it's all to do with not wanting to let me down not wanting to let my audience down no matter what it is that i do you know i'm there to facilitate a good time for them i'm not there to be entertained they're there to be entertained and money is a secondary but you know, you have to have a purpose and you have to have a reason to go to work. And since I've seen my job and my life as work, um, everything makes sense. When daddy leaves the house, daddy goes to work. And my four children have given me immense purpose and immense drive. As I've said before, my, my family were cannon fodder and they were pit workers and bog marchers and you know can canal diggers and you know uh my grandma's school report said she will be fit to work for the people over her fit to work for the people over her that's all she was going to do she's going to leave school and work under somebody Mm -hmm. and that's one person ago and i meet that's done what i've done i want to see how far that i can take this you know, it's like I want to see how far this can go and what I can create. Driving force behind that is my family and my family's family and my family's family family. And also the driving force behind that is creativity and a drive to be a success with what I'm creating. It gives me purpose. But the check isn't the driving force. Cristiano Ronaldo, when he gets on the football field, isn't thinking about his 500 grand a week. He's thinking about his purpose and what he needs to do and how he needs to achieve greatness. Uh, in whatever forum I am in, in whatever meager talents I have, I'm trying to at least achieve greatness. And if money comes because of that, then great. How have you adapted the crazy life into your family life? Because you are quite the family man these days. I think it's, it's only crazy when I go to work. You know, and and my life consists of doing nothing for several months and then everything for a short period of time and then nothing again for several months. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just daddy. I'm, I'm, I'm Bruce Wayne, you know? Um, And then I get exhausted because work tends to demand an awful lot of me for a very short period of time. So, you know, uh, I could be a better father during these moments, but I only have enough energy to promote the album and to do the show. The two do mix well. You know, I'm I'm in a monogamous relationship with my wife. I'm a good boy. I want to be a good father and role model to my children, and I want to provide for them uh, a the most amazing life. We've, we, we're doing well. Every day's a school day. You know, the kids... The kids need to see me, so they're homeschooled right now. The wife thinks that they should have a high school experience. I don't think so at all. I just want them with me at all times. They make they make everything for me make sense. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, 
I'm in love. I'm totally in love. This is a question that I suppose I could ask anyone with your level of fame. Let's say you and the family want to go away to like Paris or something. You want to go to Disneyland. What do you do? Because if you do that, you're just going to be mobbed. You can't just go on EasyJet, surely. I don't think there's like posher planes that go to like local destinations. What do you do? We were in Disneyland two weeks ago. Oh, oh, well, fair enough. Yeah, we were in Paris and um, COVID masks. Absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say, did you wear a disguise? Yeah, the the masks, the, those masks in COVID have just made uh, more things possible than ever were before. So, you know, we went to Disneyland in Paris on a very, very busy weekend. We stayed at the hotel there um, at Disneyland, had the most incredible time, created some incredible memories as a family. And I had my cap on and I had my sunglasses on and I had a COVID mask and you know out of uh 8000 people that were there maybe two people recognized who I was wow did you fly easyjet or ryanair or something <laughs> uh, well I, we were actually already in paris so i was uh, we'd been there for quite some time the wife the wife thinks she's french and she absolutely <laughs> adores paris so we spend we spend a lot of time there hope you're enjoying the podcast there's a word from our sponsor harry's having such a scratchy face I'm always delighted to get a new Harry's set. There's a foaming gel, hydrating night lotion, and the razor with the weighted handle really gets the job done. The trimmer blade makes it so easy to get into those tricky places to reach. The shave gel offers effective lubrication and just comes off like butter. It's such a smooth shave. It shaves fast, efficiently, no discomfort, and it is so smooth by the end. The hydrating night lotion is light and non-greasy. Harry's is doing a zero pounds trial. Start shaving with the products, just pay for delivery. Save every time. Save on all your shaving products without sacrificing quality. You're in control. You can modify or cancel your plan from the account page. Make sure to support our podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and have your trial set delivered to your door. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. What do your parents make of your meteoric rise? And did their lives change as well as the money came in? I think it's very complicated for them. Um, Complicated and wonderful and weird because... On a very basic level, my mum, whose job it is to nurture, was dealing with an alcoholic son and an addict son. So, you know, whether that person is famous or not, that's all that they're dealing with. And uh, that was her and my story from 17 until 26, 25. Um, My dad wears it very very well you know he's he loves it and he's incredibly proud of me he's also been on tour with me and done every single show with me for the last 15 years wow. comes on sings with me uh but unfortunately he's got parkinson's now and he's hmm. he's nearly homebound so he can't come do that anymore um yeah i think that my dad loves it and my mum's found it 
difficult to deal with. And there was that, I mean, I think it was misunderstood when you when you said, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. It became this big famous thing. But I gather that was a joke that was misunderstood, right? Yeah, what happened was, actually what was happening in my mind was, I'm this charlatan that's taken up a space in the music industry just by sheer fluke of being auditioning for a boy band and getting in. And now I'm being given the biggest record contract in the history of music. I I, I couldn't, I, I, it didn't, you know, and um, I just, I think what, what does a person behave like and perform like that's, that's being paid 80 million, you know, how does, I couldn't fathom it. So, you know, a lot of the time when I'm scared, I act with bravado. I think, I think everybody does actually. Bravado is a, a cover for insecurities. And um, I went round to sign this contract and the paparazzi were there and it was the record company and an inking of a contract. And I thought to myself, all that's missing is like a giant check from the lottery, you know, yeah. there's 80 million quid on it. Me going like that. <laughs> and uh, I think my, my, my memory is that the paparazzi were like, give us a quote, Robbie, give us a quote. Now there's a lady that in 1979 or 1980 won the pools and she won a million or so. And it was a big win, the biggest win. And she was asked what she was going to do with the money. And she said, I'm going to spend, spend, spend. I thought she said, I'm rich beyond my wildest dream, <laughs> which is what came out of my mouth, thinking that people will understand that I'm aping this lady. And, um, yeah, that it was, it, yeah, it, it, it erroneously, um, that's what I said. And then it stuck with me. And then I, I used to have this flat on the 15th floor in um, Chelsea, Chelsea Harbour. And the, the windows and the, the curtains were closed one day. And I, I just woke up with something happening outside. I'm like, hey, I'm on the 15th floor. What is it? And, then, and then I heard, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> and I went to open the curtain and it was a window cleaner on one of those things. And it was just like... <laughs> <laughs> did he know it was you then in, in spirit behind the curtains yeah, yeah yeah but he didn't know that i was actually in bed listening to what he said so i know, <laughs> went into, uh, I know that it went oh. into uh you know the 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 public as one of those moments where i said one of those things so i gotta ask do you actually own a private island no i don't own a private island no 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 mm. you live down down the road from Brittany, didn't didn't you when all the I mean the paparazzi stuff you were touching on before that was when it was at its maddest wasn't it yeah I used to go past like outside of mine we both lived on gated communities and outside of mine there was like several famous people you know in mine Charlie Sheen Tom Jones Paris Hilton Christina Aguilera Shaquille O'Neal and so on and so forth and other people you know and there, so there would be Six, as you would turn out of the gates, just waiting for one of us. And, um, and so it would be. But then you'd go past Britney's and there'd be the gates and the road and then a rough piece of land. And on that rough piece of land, there'd be anything between 10 to 20 cars just waiting for her. Oh. And uh, 
Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I know what those moments felt like for me and I know how unbearable they were. I could only imagine what that kind of scrutiny must have felt like. Did you meet Brittany? Brittany lived in another gay community. Yeah, I met several of those neighbours and we got on perfectly fine. Actually, Slash used to live across the road from me. And um, there was there was like, it's Slash. And uh, there was one day I, I saw him and, you know, I, I, he spent some time in Stoke-on-Trent. He, he came from Stoke-on-Trent, weirdly yeah. enough. And like, I'm from Stoke and I'm Slash and me. And um, it was one of those moments where you rise above yourself and you like, just notice what's happening. I'm sort of leaning against his wall and he's leaning against his wall and we're moaning about the home, the housing association. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, I just was like, you are with Slash in Los Angeles moaning about the housing association. What is your life? This is mental. I heard you speaking recently about having lots of people working in your house and how strange that is to wake up and like, you know, it's not your family, they're people working there. Yeah, uh, we, we had a, a rather large house in Beverly Hills. And um, yeah, because you make a bit of money and then you wonder what you do with it. And then you can give it to these people that are supposed to grow your money for you. And then after a while you go, I don't trust these people. I, I don't think they're bothered. What should we do? And then you think, well, I'll, I'll put it in bricks and mortar because if you put it in bricks and mortar, if the arse falls out of the world, at least you'll have walls to live in. So I bought this massive place in Beverly Hills. And um, what I didn't understand in my naivety was what it takes to run something like that and what it does take to run something like that. it's like having a mega yacht but on land and um wow. you know I won't, I won't go but I, i'd come down and i'd look through the kitchen window and there'd be 11 cars in the car park and none of them would be ours and they'd be everybody that works at the house and um i never had the opportunity to completely relax into my newfound surroundings because ultimately I'm from Stoke-on-Trent and I know that 11 cars in the car park that work at your house isn't right. And uh, because every one of those cars is costing you money. Uh, so you living in this house is costing you money. And um, yeah, we solved that. Do you go back to Stoke-on-Trent? Have you ever, for example, done a talk at your high school or gone a high school reunion or anything like that? I was there yesterday. I was doing, uh, I was at Port Vale and um, I was doing an interview for Apple Music, for Apple Music yesterday. And um, I've started going back to Port Vale because the chairperson is a wonderful lady. Uh, she's absolute magic. Her name's Carol. And I, I, I think that my football club has got the best chairperson uh, man or woman that could be available and she's she's just intoxicating as a person you just want to be around her because she emanates positivity and safety and kindness and she's mm -hmm. doing an awful lot for charity so i'm i'm back in the fold i'm i'm at port vale when i can get to port vale and I'm in Stoke when I can be in Stoke. Would you ever buy one of the clubs like Ryan Reynolds? Bought Wrexham, didn't he? I can't afford a football club. You know, it's like if 
if I if it was my only thing, I could afford a football club. But it's not my only thing, you know. Um, the outgoings, it, it's a it's a hefty hobby to have, and I wonder what's in it for them. You know, what's you know, it's like, is yeah. there is there ten million from Amazon or Netflix for the documentary? What 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 is it that you know they because you know they're very very busy people and they live in another side of the world and they have families of their own why are they getting on a plane and coming to wales i'm not knocking it because i think it's beautiful <laughs> and i think it's wonderful and you know i have total admiration for both of those two people and ryan reynolds i i absolutely love you know it's like i've got a massive talent crush on him but if i can figure out why they're doing it then maybe i'll do it too yeah. <laughs> well that's what i wanted to talk about your upcoming deal with netflix on your docuseries are we able to talk about that yeah yeah um i don't know what it is yet i know it's a um, four-hour documentary um it's for four episodes um uh we i had a meeting with the director last week and we passionately want to break form with what has whatever's happened with other documentaries because you know i'm not interested or excited about uh archive footage and a talking head interview because you know it's boring and it's been done to death i'd like the form to be different and I don't think you can have a four-hour documentary about me and just have it be archive footage and chatting. Um, I think that would bore people. And the last thing that I want to do with anything that I do is to bore people. I want them to be entertained. Hmm. And I want them to um felt good about um investing that time wondering about me what do you think of the death of amy winehouse and what advice do you give to young people who are battling demons and have got addiction issues because i think it's important you know your story is so inspirational you've gone through the hellfire and you've been become hugely successful what are the tools you could pass down to young people who are suffering in this day and age well i'm at the other side of the tunnel i can go back into that tunnel whenever I so choose, you know, you're never fully recovered or safe, but I can tell people there is peace and there is a safety and there is a modicum of trust that you can have in yourself. And there is a reason to live and persevere. Unfortunately, when you are dealing with addictions and when you are dealing with the mental illnesses attached to them, like depression, anxiety and whatever, it takes an awful long time to come out the other end. But you didn't get there in a day. You know, I, I, I was told this, that, you know, what happens is one day a brick appears and then next day two bricks appears and so on and so forth before uh, and before you know it, you're under this massive castle or incredibly huge wall that you've built for yourself. And it's impossible to get out, especially in a day. It's just, that's just not possible. I would just say simply, there is a reason to live and there is a reason to live sober. And there is so much to do and so much to be achieved. And, you know, you have, 
so much less to worry about um, when you're out of your addiction and being a functioning, I wouldn't say fully functioning human being. I would suggest that you take the help that is given to you. Um, you listen to the people that love you. I see some people out and about that you know, won't be helped. And that's tragic. Um, I, for one, didn't want to be in any pain anymore. I, I wanted to be out of that pain. And I wanted to learn and understand why I was doing this to myself and how it could end. I didn't know the journey was going to be so laborious and trudging through bleak soup and all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, life is fucking good. And I do find joy in things and I do get excited and I do have purpose and you, you all can achieve that. You know, it's like, I know that I live in rarefied conditions where a lot is afforded to me that isn't afforded to a lot of folks, but it doesn't matter. You know, I've seen people in and around the rooms that help people to get well, that are existing above and beyond their wildest dreams and getting to achieve things that they never thought would be possible. It is possible to be well. It is possible to love and be loved. And it is possible to be looking forward to things and knowing that you'll turn up for them and be the best version of yourself that you can be. Um, it genuinely is a beautiful thing, but it takes fucking time and Jesus Christ. It takes so long. Um with some people, it doesn't know. And you might be that person, whoever it is that I'm talking to down this YouTube channel. Speaking of what you're talking about now, um, aptly titled Better Man biopic. Are you, how involved are you in that? Uh, I'm very, I'm very involved. Um, Michael Gracie that helmed The Greatest Showman. It was a huge movie, massive success. Uh, is a mate of mine and asked me if he could do a biopic about me. And, uh, yeah, yeah, of course you can, wow. Michael. Yeah. And I sat down and I, I told him my stories and, uh, I told him my stories for 12 hours. Um, so the whole script is in my words and is my voice. Um, but down to who is cast in whatever roles. Um, yeah, no, um, it's my music. It's my music. It's my words. John O'Davies is, is, is you. Yeah, John O'Davies is me doing a great job as me. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, it's. I, I've seen some of the rushes and uh, there's quite a big idea for the film. Once again, it breaks with type and it's not your usual. You know, it's um, it, it's it's got every opportunity to be a success. And for somebody that doesn't like anything that they've ever done, it takes a lot for me to say that. So does it not scare you bringing your children into the public eye? Uh, they're in the public eye, whether they want to be or not. Does and it not scare you? Yeah, absolutely terrifies me. From 16, the press are allowed to do whatever they want with them. You know, at the moment in this country, in the UK, they're not allowed to show their faces. But after they become 16, they're, they're, they're public property. And it's difficult to know what to do. Especially, as I've mentioned Teddy before, she's my 10-year-old that just wants to be a performer. 
And there are moments that I really want to have with her. You know, I want that moment where I'm on stage with her, singing with her and having that daddy-daughter moment. And I get to show the world this beautiful creature that I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, and she gets to, you know, it's like, it, it is difficult to know what to do. Do you introduce her to this? Cause this is what you're going to do. Do you get used to it? I don't know. Every day's a school day at the minute, you know, their, their privacy is ensured at least in the UK. Uh, but then they become, then they become other. That being said, I, I love their mom and their home life is, um, incredible and loving and safe. And if I could choose to be anyone, I'd choose to be any one of my children. They have the best life. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it is, it is, it is a conundrum. Um, obviously I never want them to have the internet. I never want them to be able to read any comments about themselves. I know what damage that does. I know what online trolling has done to me and my psyche and it it pains me to think that they would ever inhabit anything that feels like that what about the classmates do they get treated differently at school no because they're in posh school it's like you know (laughs) even though there's a hierarchy though isn't there dude dude we're the poorest at school Honestly, we're the poor relations. Believe me. Are there other sort of celebrity parents? Are there? Are you at parents' evening and there's like you know here's I can't think of an English celebrity right now, but you know what I mean. No, well, at the moment they they're homeschooled, but they do they do have a school that they go to when they're in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. there are there are different places where they can find being social and having a semi-school life but um yeah when whenever they're there it's like you know p diddy's the dad of the one above and you know it's 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 all that stuff it's like i i and like financially i pale into insignificance when it comes to these big hitters that have got the kids at the schools that my kids frequent. When you were living in LA, did you sort of, was it natural to sort of group together with other Brits out there? Did you know David Beckham? Did you cross over with him? My house is basically the Isle of Wight in the middle of Beverly Hills. (laughs) It's just British people. And then my (laughs) wife and my mother-in-law and her boyfriend. Oh yeah. And my, uh, yeah, my my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, everybody else is British. Everybody. Can we talk about your podcast at home with the William sissies? I can't say it. This is. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Like, yeah. You haven't posted on a while, but you did it through lockdown. Yeah, we did it. I had a Christmas album out and um, it was a way to promote the Christmas album. And me and my wife got to work together and we, we basically had domestics in the confines of the safety that neither of us could take it too far because it was all being recorded. That wasn't the basis of the podcast, but that's what it actually turned into. Remember when you did that and I didn't like it? (laughs) Remember when you did that and I hated it? Yeah, I remember it. (laughs) But that's, that's the thing is about 
your line of work and, and what you're doing, which is something that I'd really love to do, but I don't have the time to be persistent and also um, create that content week after week, day after day. It's a full-time job. You you guys have a full-time job. I also have a full-time job. And um, as much as I would like to think that I would be a good YouTuber or a good podcaster, I don't have the time right now. Is there anything nope. else you aspire to be outside of music? Yeah, I, I think I was mentioning before, I've, I've written a TV show, a, a dark comedy. I'd like that to be a success. I've got this idea for a talent show. I'd like that to be a success. So what's your story mm. arc for your dark comedy? I don't want to give it away, but it's good. <laughs> it's really, really, really good. Is it, it based involves- in Stoke? Yeah. yeah it is. Oh, yeah. great. Wow. <laughs> Makes me think of that. Um, Steve Merchant recently had one back in, in Bristol, which is where I am now, and uh, it had that real feel to it. Well, we're almost yeah. at two hours, Rob. You've been very generous with your time. I'm not going to push you. it here. Um, if you've got any any final stuff you'd like to say to the viewers... Um, no, because I've got to watch Married at First Sight. Is anybody else watching? Oh, Married I love that. Sean <laughs> wouldn't watch- have a clue. I love you, it. Are you up to date? No, don't. No spoilers, please, because I'm not going to come away for a few days. <laughs> Is it getting brutal? Yeah, it's just a classic, classic season. It's, it's, um, it's uh, very, very good TV. You're not watching Jeffrey Dahmer then? My drummer's watching the Jeffrey Dahmer thing, and I don't want to go to bed with that. That's not... No. Oh, it's dark. No. So yeah, many people... Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm currently away from the house, rehearsing up in Birmingham, and I would rather go to bed on conflict... Uh, designed by a reality TV show for people that have just gotten married that have never met <laughs> around a dinner table that are too drunk than actually watch anything to do with Jeffrey Dahmer before I go. Amen. <laughs> well, huge thank you, Rob. You know, it's been yeah. an absolute blast. If there's anything we can ever do for you, you just please let us know, and you. Enjoy. Well, let's 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 keep in contact because you know I I'd, I'd like to maybe come on and be uh, be a host with you. Yes. Can I- no, no. Warrington people, they, they were our mortal enemies in Witness. We were the chemical manufacturing town. They were the wire manufacturing town. So it was the chemics versus the wires. And at Did the you... rugby league matches, they'd be standing Braveheart-style battles and the police had set the dogs on us and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was with I was with all the, the rugby lads uh, from Warrington, the ones that used to go and watch the, watch the rugby. That's why I was safe at the nightclubs. Yeah, it was. Was it Mr. Smith's too? There. Yeah, the Hitman and Her came out of Mr. Smith's, and there was Legends as well. It was a rave club out of Warrington? Did you ever get to that one? No, I didn't. Did you ever go to Quadrant Park? Oh, Quadrant Park was like my mecca. After it was the state earlier on in Liverpool, they shut that down. Everyone started to go to Quadrant Park, and yeah, it was. I had some good nights in in the quad. Yeah, and you went to Cream, right? No, because I went to America in '91. Oh, whereabouts in America did you go to? I was in Phoenix, Arizona for about 16, 17 years. Oh, right. You went straight to Phoenix. I know your story, obviously, but I I couldn't remember where you went to. Phoenix. Did you gig in Phoenix? No, no. Probably, but I can't remember. It was 25 years ago. 
Beautiful place, Grand Canyon. You can see all the stars and everything. Oh, it's yeah. I uh, yeah, no, I, I've I've rehabbed in Arizona, so I'm. Oh, in, in Tucson, in Tucson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my girlfriend who got me to shoot up heroin with her, she ended up in that exact same rehab. Cottonwood and, or whatever it is, and, and, and she told me about it. And I bought shares in it, and they went up five hundred percent. Yeah, that that's yeah, that's another story. Rehabs and 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 profitable rehabs. Next so, Health, I think, was it, the company that owned it. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Um, oh, wow. So, Jen, did you get broken into or something the other day? I did. Yes, yeah. somebody uh, broke. Well, they broke my bedroom window. Very late. Yes, yeah, it's pretty. That, oh, that's that why I'm mean, currently away at the moment. I'm not at my home, so I'm away to stay with friends. It, is that something to do with something that you've said or is that just a random thing? No, we think it's, yes. Yeah, I don't think it's anything to do with the YouTube world. But no, oh, that's, well, so, well, that's good. Yeah. What, what's yeah. your story, Jen? What's my story? Yeah. Uh, what would you like to know? Uh, no, how did you end up doing this? Oh, coming on the podcast with Sean. Uh, it started off with me getting to wear one of my uh, hoodies because I've got a organic cotton clothing company business. And then we became really good friends. And then it was August last year he came and asked me. And I was I was up for the challenge. So, so you've never done fun. anything like this before? No, and I've got my lucky knickers on tonight, what I wore on my first interview. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, so I'm very proud that I must be the Jubilee for uh, your lucky knickers. You've been my favourite. And Andrew, Andrew what's, your, what's your story? So I, I sort of grew up um, uh, idolising Louis Theroux. So I started making documentaries for uh, the BBC and HBO where I'd be on screen. And my sort of big hitter was one about exorcism in Argentina. I and mean, it's on YouTube or iPlayer. I think I've seen it. I think I've seen it. So what did you make of the um, the whole exorcism? So the amazing thing was, because I'm, I'm an atheist personally, um, but also I'm really open-minded to whatever, you know, whatever I see, I see. Uh, and the people who got exercised, there were three different women that we exercised and they all got much better because they had things like schizophrenia, bulimia, uh, various mental health, intrusive thoughts like you were speaking about before. That was a big one. So these are all things, you know, that we, we think of as psychological, but they thought of as demons inside them and this priest was exercising. So they got better, but I went back to Buenos Aires a year later and they were sort of back to the beginning again, which to me implies it was a bit of a placebo suggestion thing. Also, the exorcist was really abusive and he sort of locked me in this room at the end and started screaming at me and I thought he was going to kill me. Why did he do that? Because I was asked questions about his relations with one of the women because he was getting very close with her and she was um, like 18 and he was like you know 60 odd um, and he wasn't supposed to be like kissing her and he was living upstairs with her so I was asking a few questions and a few of the clergy were a bit jealous and they were like whispering things to me like well he's a bit close with her that kind of thing and I got a bit stupid because I didn't think about even though they're bitching to me I didn't think about how they were going to then tell him what I said so there was this moment when he had this big mass, he's quite a famous guy out there. He had tens of thousands of people. It's the middle of nowhere in Buenos Aires at midnight. And we go 
in me and my director it's just me and my mate my mate david basically we go in expecting to film the big mass full of exorcisms and then suddenly someone says uh oh andrew can you just come backstage so there's like people like frothing at the mouth in this mass they're all like falling over each other he's he's got the music from the exorcist tubular bells playing in the mass in the church and then in the nave and i go backstage and he's there the exorcist and he's going you've interviewed me i'm now going to interview you just come in here a minute and he wouldn't let my cameraman in and he had a few big blokes with that thing from Jafar, Jafar from Aladdin, the staff. They've all got that and they were sort of hovering over me and for about an hour just screaming at me, pushing me around this room. And my director's trying to open the door and they're slamming it shut and the guy's just screaming and screaming and screaming. And he's, he's going, why are you asking people about me giving mouth kisses to this girl? And I was like, I, I, I didn't. Well, I did, but I didn't mean it like that. And he's going, well, you... And all this stuff. And eventually they did just... Um, let, let us go and as we're leaving i can hear him in the mass of thousands of people and he's going the devil is in here tonight and the, the falklands they took the falklands because we we're british obviously in argentina just mad stuff but yeah we got away eventually wow how, how well. terrifying <laughs> it was <laughs> i was shaken uh, and and are you from london or are you from bristol i'm from watford just outside london are you any relation to rasgold no i don't know who that is all right. Okay. My, uh, you're Jewish, right? Yeah. My my wife's uh, Arkenazi Jewish. Oh, really? He's a Cohen. Yeah. I bet. Um. I bet our families know each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's nice. So, by in, in turn, our kids are Jewish too, right? Because the wife is. That's right. That's right. Do they know? Do they know they're Jewish? Um. I. I. I believe in passing they do. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because in, it, no one knows if it's an ethnicity, a culture, or a religion. You can be an atheist Jew, of course. Uh, and I was reading Christopher Hitchens talking about he found out after his mum committed suicide that she had been Jewish and kept it from them because they were scared of anti-Semitism. And he said it just changed his whole view. He was like 50 years old by this point. It changed his whole view of his life. And he was very happy to hear it, he said. But he, it was a, it's a strange thing to find out. Yeah, I think I became atheist for 10 minutes because I, I watched his, I did my research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I, I, I believe in something. I don't know what that something is. I'm not, mm. I'm not fully atheist. I'm a, I'm a C plus theist. Yeah. You believe in angels, one might say. I do. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is a good point, isn't it? That is a religious song isn't it people don't is it it is a religious song yeah now whether they exist or not who knows but um yeah. i like i like i like my belief in uh archangel michael and archangel gabriel and um yeah that song's about actual angels uh whether it's fantasy or not i care not i i, yeah. I they they exist in my mind this podcast is sponsored by gadfly press we are proud to announce the publication of Britain's number one art forger, Max Brandert, The Life of a Cheeky Faker. And from the back cover blurb, Max the Forger is an artist and gentleman whose colourful lifestyle has spanned over 70 years. He has lived under the strict regime of Bernardo's children's homes, being an elephant handler in the circus, lived rough, 
busked his way from Brighton to Bombay, sold his fakes up and down the country, dined with dukes, socialised with celebrities, associated with gangsters, served time in prison, and donated tens of thousands to charity. And through it all, he has never stopped smiling and loving life and missing his mum. Quote from the book. Mr. Brandrett, I do not see you as a malicious criminal, sighed the judge. But why, oh why, do you continue to use your God-given talent in this way? I just can't help myself, Your Honor. It's like an addiction, I grinned. Available worldwide on Amazon, link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor.